0: How's it going, everybody? This is Andy McCullough from The Athletic here with Mark Corrig, also from The Athletic. Welcome back to the latest episode of Beyond the Scrum, the athletics podcast about baseball and sports media. Mark, how's it going? Doing all right, Andy. That's great to hear, Mark. Hey, we've got a great guest this week. Uh, he is a man with a lot of wearing a lot of hats at this time. He's done a lot in various uh, businesses, the sports writing business, the baseball industry, and now in hockey, where he works as a scout for the San Jose Sharks, not the Anaheim Ducks, as I said on our first intro that was deleted. It's Ned Coletti. Ned, how's it going?
1: Doing okay, gentlemen. Good to be with you today. Oh.
0: What, what are you up to these days, Ned? Like, you've got all this stuff going on. What, what are you able to do, I guess, during, you know, the pandemic?
1: Well, at, you know, I teach at Pepperdine, and we wrapped uh, our semester up via Zoom about three weeks ago. So uh, that's opened up some time, and, and the Zoom experience was, um, you know, different, but uh, we managed to get through it. And uh, so that, uh, that's in that spot. We're trying to figure out the fall semester. Uh, San Jose had a rough year on the ice this year, so we're uh, in the process of going through evaluating our club. We're looking at potential free agents. and hockey, you have restricted free agents as well as as, uh, unrestricted free agents, so kind of taking a look a little bit towards next year. And then uh, I do two or three Dodger TV shows a month, including one today. and um, So that's what I've been doing, but I've also had some time to really take a breath. You know, mm-hmm. for, for decades, I've just been I've been going strong and, and hard every day. Uh, and for the first time, probably since I was a teenager, mm-hmm. I've had a chance to kind of slow it down and take a look around and try and figure out what I want to do and, and what the priorities ought to be instead of what they have been sometimes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Does that just come from sort of being able to, like you said, take a breath and, and take some time just to reflect after kind of... I, I imagine you've just been pushing for a really long time professionally I'm curious like what your how you feel now that' you're reevaluating a little bit
1: well it's it's been interesting um, you know I you know my, my background I you know a I, I, blue-collar kid and I lived in a garage till we were I was five years old and then uh, uh, into a tiny tiny house so I've always been driven to, to be successful driven to provide for family all those things and the jobs I've had they're, they're not part-time you know they're not when you're the gm at the dodgers it's not like you work monday through friday eight to five mm-hmm. you know it's like every every hour of the day pretty much that you're awake and and almost every day of the year so i'm at the stage of life where i finally had a chance to kind of look back and and think about how i want to spend the rest of my days and think about how where i want to want to prioritize i've got uh, two grown kids and, and they have families and to be able to sit and just talk to them and be with them without looking at my phone every five minutes trying to figure out uh, if there's something that I need to uh, adjust to or, or go take a call. Uh, it's been a refreshing situation in some ways. I try to find a positive in everything. I try to enjoy every day and, um, and make the most of it. And there's nothing we can do about this. Where, where we're sitting right now with the, with the COVID-19, uh, there's nothing we can do but be wise with our choices. And so it's not like we could work harder or, or try to, you know, call more people or, or do some other things to make this thing go away. And I think that the last thing I'll say about it is, you know, I'm one of those people that I would see a game almost every day. I'd see probably 225 games a year during a baseball season because I didn't want to miss a performance. I didn't want to miss this kid. I didn't want to miss this guy and this other team that you know, we may have interest in. So it was a constant. And now there's really nothing to miss when it comes to what I have done for a living because everything is sitting in the same place. Everything is sitting at the house. We were were curious, you know, as someone who obviously
0: has done a lot of negotiations in your career, if you had any take just kind of on the back and forth right now between ownership and the players and whether this feels to you like kind of the standard sort of negotiation or if it's something that's, uh, a little bit outside of the realm of what's normal in terms of where the positions are right now?
1: Well, I think it, it's it's a little bit of both, and I think it, there's also probably a third component in there as well. I've been through a handful of lockouts and strikes in my, my baseball career. Um, so I understand the tenor of a negotiation. I understand uh, posturing. I understand uh, all, all the different dynamics. I can't tell you I'm in the room, so I don't know exactly what everybody's thinking or what everybody's trying to to uh, to accomplish, uh, but I, I do find it interesting that you know we're we're sitting in a place we've never sat before inside a a pandemic. That's the issue. There's a CBA in place, but there's a different dynamic that is affecting the revenue in the game completely. Uh, so you know that's an interesting dynamic. But I think that the third dynamic to it. And while most of this stuff is is just, you know, to answer your, your question, uh, is this kind of the typical negotiation, the, the posturing, the up and down, the back and forth. Hey, let's try this. You never know. Somebody may say yes. You know, uh, I mean, that's all kind of typical. But the third aspect of it that I, I continue to keep in the back of my mind is there's a CBA coming up. A CBA, you know, a year from now, they'll be discussing a brand new CBA. And so... Both sides, I think, will learn the value points and really the hot buttons for both sides, okay? And I think that there's an education going on for everybody involved. The union is seeing what the owners really are, are key to them. And it's going the other way too. And I think that if, if we were in the middle of a CBA that had three or four years to run, I think the negotiation is somewhat different. But I do think that when you have a CBA that is coming up at the end of next season, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of taking notes. You're kind of seeing where you're going and what you're doing. You know, I know that in all my negotiations, I probably did $2 billion worth of contracts during a long period of time that, you know, I you learn the agent, you learn what's important to the agent. And if it's a player that you signed for a couple of years, let's say, and you want the player back, and the player would like to be back, you've already got a scouting report. You know kind of where they're at, what they think, what they value. You know, when you negotiate, you can listen to somebody talk for 60 minutes. There may be be 50 seconds in there that tell you the story, and you gotta be prepared to listen for that. So there's a whole lot of things going on with this negotiation, including, I think, a little bit of a learning of next year, what is going to be key to what others to the other side and i think there's another maybe one other point to it any side that feels like it doesn't get what it wants this time around if it compromises in its mind a little bit too strongly there's a chance that they will try to make up for that a year and a half from now
2: I mean, Ned, you you started at that start at the beginning of your answer, like you said, it's a place they've never been before because of what is going on in the world. So, given that context, is it a little surprising, from your vantage point, that there is this sense of you know, like you said, note taking, trying to get a sense for where people are, you know, in 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 preparation for an upcoming CBA.
1: It's hard to say without without really being in the in the middle of it, but I. There is, it is so unique to be sitting where everybody is sitting. And I don't know that everybody, you know, it's as smart as everybody is, nobody's ever been through this. And so the experience of that, and you've got, I don't know how many players, 900, 800, 900, 1,000 players. You've got 30 team owners. You've got Major League Baseball. You've got different entities that have got different stakes in the game and different revenue sources in different different situations so i think the entire process i mean it's it's very interesting to watch it and to watch it unfold and i don't think that any any side has really shown its complete hand yet i think uh you know people look at it every day and expect great movement you uh, know in a negotiation people know what the dates are the players know when they probably have to get to the point where they have to get back and they have spring training 2.0. Ownership knows the same thing. So until you get to that crux, until you get to that crossroad, you, you, you kind of just posture and you kind of see what you can figure out. It's like the trading deadline, Andy, you know, and Mark, you know, you you can make a trade pretty much any day of the baseball season. Why are 20 of them made the 31st of July? Right. Cuz that's when you have to do it. Mm-hmm. So until they have to get to that point where the season is going to be affected even more by not having an agreement, until you get to that point, I don't think either side is showing their hand. Mm-hmm. So would you be would you be surprised if this breaks down over money? I think I would. I think it's in everybody's best interest to play. I mean, we can start with the country and and the fan bases and people who are are really struggling in a lot of different ways. Uh, You can start with that, which is a huge piece of it. But I think a player's career is only so long. And do you want to miss whatever you're going to earn this season? Do you want to miss that? Are you willing to miss that? Ownership, the same thing. It's a $10 billion industry. How much do they want to miss? Their, their opportunity to, to expand and to be, you know, 10 years in the business, 20 years in the business, 30 years in the business, far different than a baseball player. And the other thing for a baseball player, I think when I look back at players that, that I've, I've signed or I've thought about signing that stopped playing in October of 2019 and didn't start playing again until April, of 2021 to be off a year and a half from the ultra-competitive sport that it is, any sport. I don't know that, guys, that everybody comes back the same way they left. I think a year and a half off, not rehabbing an injury, kind of stopping and starting and, and, and shutting your body down, which you have to do, At the end of last season, you shut it down for a while, then you start working your way up. You're a veteran player, you get into spring training, start to grind your way up. You know what you got ahead of you. You got 162 games, and then maybe another month of playoffs after that. You got all these things. You turn it back on. You're just about ready to turn it on full bore, and pandemic hits. You shut it down, but not all the way because it only may be a week or two weeks. Then it's two months. Then it's two-plus months. And so, you know, you shut down, you start, you shut down, you start. If, if there's no baseball this year, if it doesn't happen, and you're in your mid-30s or your early 30s, and you've stopped and started, stopped and started, when you take 18 months off, are you the same player? I don't know the answer to that. I just know that it's, it's, it's going to be a curiosity for me to say, hey, you know, is this player going to come back? Because you look at guys that have been hurt, and have missed ex- extensive time. They don't always come back the same way. And I'm not, and this is a little different because guys necessarily aren't hurt. But my point is when you, when you, you have to be so good and the talent is at such a high level and the competitiveness, we're talking off the chart stuff. We're talking the best in the world. That when you, when, you, when you stop it, start it, stop it, start it, then you don't have a chance to really do it for 18 months. Are you the same? I think if you're 25, 22, stuff like that, oh yeah. yeah you've missed a year of earning, but you're, you know, you're, you're still in that, that, that age group where it's, it's a little bit easier to come back. You get to be a little bit older than that, even at the psychological part, part of it, of the company, you know shutting it off, turning it back on a few different times. So I think it's, I think it's in everybody's best interest that there is uh, a season of some duration.
2: Yeah, that's such a great point. I, I mean, I guess it feeds into another one, Ned. Uh, you know, you're talking about players that you don't know when they, this restarts again, they're going to look the same, be the same. Could that also be said about baseball as a whole? Because it certainly feels like, you know, this is one of those events where it, it just isn't going to look exactly the same as it was before
1: all of this stopped.
2: Do you see this being a thing that changes the sport going forward forever?
1: I, I think it's possible. I think we I think we don't know again it's uh you know there's there's no roadmap to this there's no there's no you know we're writing the history lesson we have we don't have a history lesson to go back to we're writing a history lesson here, and we're you know we're in the midst of it and I think when it's over with a year or so after that, we'll look back and see you know what has changed, and there's a chance that many things have changed because it's not just that. Uh, there's been a lockout or a strike and so the game went away for a while like it did in 94-95. No, there's, there's so many other factors involved, including your fan base and what they've suffered through. And what they've suffered through financially and how many people have a job, how many people have the same job, how many people have the same income. You know, follow the money, follow how, how players get paid and, and follow how, you know, what, how, how it goes. You know, we, we do it in class every year at Pepperdine. Follow the money. Where does it start? How does this happen? How does somebody make what they make as an athlete? Follow the money and and it starts out really most of the time it's going to start out with the consumer with the fan and how are they going to be affected by that? We don't know yet but we do know that that if it if it was right here right now that we had to take a look at it we know it's going to be drastically different because you've got unemployment rates that are historic yeah i
0: mean there's going to be probably fewer people going to ballparks both for you know economic reasons and also just for kind of fear of public health sort of stuff and how is that yeah i mean thing? we can't you know yeah.
1: you can't in some states you can't have dinner with three people right Right. how are you going to get fifty thousand people in one place you know you can't right. you can't have dinner with right. three people but you know the three people <laughs> right <laughs> and, at, and at what
0: point too like even in a even if there's you know like like fingers crossed, right? There's a vaccine, you know, at some point next year, there's antivirals next year, there's a way to feel safe, you know, but is, are people going to still come back to ballparks and droves? I mean, I, I, you know, we just don't know. We don't know how it's going to affect, you know, just sort of our, the things we kind of take for granted and what the sort of business is structured around.
1: Yeah. I I think if there is, if there is vaccines that have, that have proven to be, uh, you know, a deterrent or, or stop the spread and stop somebody from getting sick, and if and if the job market comes back uh, to some extent, I think you, it almost may look the same. It, it has a chance, but what's going to happen in between now and whenever those two things happen, and if people are going to find a different way to to spend their time, I don't know. There's the list of of um, of different things that are going to be. A curiosity and something to watch and to to measure and to compare. It's, I don't I don't know of anything in my lifetime that has as many variables as that. Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure.
0: On a, uh, I maybe I don't know, Mark. If, if if maybe go on a slightly lighter note for a second. Yes, let's I,
2: break I, I, up this rally. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
0: know. I, I well, I was I was curious about something you were talking about. Um, you know, like how negotiations, right? It's all posturing and things like that. Uh, I'm curious. When you were GM of the Dodgers, what's the most ridiculous trade request you ever made? That I ever made? Yeah, like did, well, or that you ever heard? But like, did you ever try and trade for
1: Mike Trout? Oh no, not <laughs> ever tried. You know, I I think I had too much respect for you know for. For some organizations to to do that, I did have, okay. I did have um, one GM who continually, I mean, like eight times a a season, would ask me about Corey Seager. Okay. <laughs> continually, I mean, it was, you know, if I would happen to run into the scout at a minor league game. He said, Hey, I got to talk to you about Seeger. I said, You know, forget about Corey Seeger. You know, you don't, you know, I'm not doing nothing with Corey Seeger. It. And it was like that too early with, with Matt Kemp. Uh-huh. And, and, uh And surprisingly, it was like that a little bit with Clayton, but not okay. to the extent that it, it could have been. Right. You know, right. I think people probably looked at Clayton the way that, that I looked at Trout, where, you know, what, what kind of conversation am I going to have about this, you know? <laughs> you know how, where do you start? Hey, uh, you know, is that center fielder going to be available, you right. know? I, you know.
0: <laughs> well, you have to ask for what but, you uh, want. Yeah, I mean, I mean you, have I, to, you have to try maybe. I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I think you have to. I think there's a, there's probably 10% of the players you wouldn't want to do anything with. It's about 80% of the players that you'll consider, obviously, and, and try to do something, and there's probably 10% that you're just going to say, hey, you know, th- there's nothing, nothing there. When I talked to Ben Sherrington back at the end of April in 2012 about Adrian Gonzalez, and I'm, I don't want to speak for Ben here, uh, I, I think he was taken aback that I had the nerve to ask for about Adrian Gonzalez. And and if you know, you know, that Red Sox team had a difficult beginning. Right. It had a difficult year. By the time we got to the 25th of August, we, you know, we we had Adrian Gonzalez. But you know, even that was kind of, you know, and I said, look, you know, I know you're probably not in the mood to do this or inclined to do this, but I just want to plant a seed in the event you ever get around to it. <laughs> you know because I know you know I would take notes and I knew who called me on Corey and I knew who called me on Matt and on and on and on through the years so you know I just you know duly noted okay and then a few <laughs> months later there there it was yeah so I, I, that's I, one way of doing it, but it's right you have to find a team that's kind of in, in distress in some way and that team had you know you knew that they were they were struggling to get to get on track that year so that was a, there was about as bold as I could get. Where I'd say, "Hey, I know you're probably not thinking about doing this, but if you ever do, <laughs> don't lose this phone number."
2: What, what do you
0: What do you say when uh, you know when someone calls and asks for you know a twenty year old Matt Kemp for something like that? I mean, how do you how do you respond?
1: Well, I would just typically laugh and say, you know, come on, you know, you know we ain't doing nothing with that. You know, and uh, what else you got on your mind? You know? <laughs> Let's go some other place, because that, you know, yeah. we got your answer, we ain't doing that. Right, right. right.
2: Oh. <laughs> like, I, you know, Ned, I feel like, a question gets asked a lot out of people you know that have run teams and been in the game a long time is all how how much have things changed but i i kind of want to flip it around because i was thinking about it as you're describing those interactions like you, you're clearly a good people person that is obviously an important thing but i i guess in the game what hasn't changed you know what i mean what what is still important to be able to do well if you're going to run a ball club and and that would have been true 20 years ago as it is
1: now well i think you have to um it's one of the toughest things I think you have to, that you have to have in sport to run an organization or run a baseball department and it's patience and I think that holds true from you know, hundred years ago through today you have to have patience most decisions that are poor decisions are made out of two situations: impatience or desperation and so you try always never to put yourself in a desperate situation. That's why farm systems are so vital. You lose a big player, you go try and replace that big player uh, on the 10th of May. You know, you're going to pay a, a dollar and a half for a dollar. Okay? Because you're in a desperate spot. You got another kid you can bring up and put in there, not going to be as as solid maybe as the player, but he can hold his own and he can he can keep you afloat, totally different dynamic. And I think patience is is a key. Patience to be uh, able to, you know, to, I, I wasn't the GM of the Dodgers when Andy was, was writing for the Times, So I never had to put up with, with Andy's push <laughs> to get me to be impatient. Oh, you had, you, you know. had Dylan though. Yeah, so Dylan way, way, worse. <laughs> way worse. Yeah, probably. Way but, worse. <laughs> but uh, you know, you listen to people every day and, and, you know, and people are, have their own ideas and, uh, you know, you can't do it. I mean, the GMs, presidents of baseball operations, without knowing all of them at this stage of my career, I would bet that there's not a day that they don't think about this almost most of the day. You could take New Year's Day and they'll be thinking about their baseball team. So nobody is, in, is as invested as they are in the daily, the daily amount of information and decision making. And many times you've got decision making that is, um, you know, it it takes time. It takes time to get there, and I don't think that they all understand that, and and all that. And so I think that uh, that the the GMs today, as they did when I was doing it, they think about it always. So they they have a better feel for it than anybody. Okay, and they also have a. They also have far more, far more information than anybody else has. You know, why did you do this? why did you do that? Well, you know what? You don't know everything and I can't tell you everything. You're just gonna have to wait and see how it all unfolds. And so that's another factor to it that, you know, GMs are always in the information business and, and that hasn't changed. It's another thing that hasn't changed in a hundred years. You're always looking for as much information as possible. And nowadays, even more information. You've got the Internet, you've got analytics, you've got a, a, just a, uh, so much more than there was 30, 40, 50 years ago. But you, know, the, the quest for information has always been at the highest, the highest peak. That's not changed. Being patient, patient has not changed. A few other things have changed, but those two things, at least those two things, have, have been consistent from the beginning. When I first started, and Dallas Green was my first boss, and he was the GM of the Cubs, you know, he worried about could a guy play, could he not play? Was he a decent guy, good teammate? You talked salary a little bit. I think my first year, the highest-paid Cub was Billy Buckner at like $400,000. And then we acquired Larry Boa from Philly, who was making $500,000. So, you know, payrolls were still part of, of your discussion. But it wasn't like, well, we got thirty million here and we got fifteen million here, and how are we going to make up the fifteen million? You know, and so, you know, that's this. I'm getting off track here a little bit, but anyway, that's things have changed a lot in some ways, and in some ways, the the foundations, the fundamentals, they never change. Do you uh, do you think Ned Coletti, the sports writer, would have enjoyed covering Ned
0: Coletti, the GM?
1: Wow, that is a,
2: <laughs>
1: that is a question I've never thought about, I, and nobody's ever... That may be one of the best questions of my era right there. Wow, I think um, it was actually Mark's question, so I'll give him credit. I took it from him. Uh, <laughs> let's see. I think, yeah, I think, it I think they would have had fun, and I think they would have... Um, I think the, the beat writer, I think, would have really uh, known how to aggravate and agitate and get a response out of the GM. <laughs> but I think they would have had a decent, a decent rapport, but that, that's a great yeah. question. That is a great question. Uh, I think they, they would have respected sorry. each other, but the writer mm-hmm. would have known. He would have known, hey, if I ask this, I know this guy's going to go off right here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what were the things that irritated you about kind of dealing with us
1: when you were in that chair? Um... Those who would write from a distance, those who would write without information, because I, the beat guys, I would always say, look, if you got something, come to me, and I'll, and I'll tell you if it's fact or fiction. I'll lead you into, you know. I'm not gonna tell you something I can't tell you, but I will tell you if you're off base, and I'll never lie to you. And so, you know, I think the beat guys were, were really pretty good uh, all the way through. Um, but once in a while, you'd have somebody write something who you didn't even know who they were. You hadn't even seen them. You know, I'd been in the game 25 years before I became a GM, and I did it for almost a decade. And there were some people who would write, and I'd, you know, I'd say, who is this person? You know, I haven't seen this guy, this guy or gal at, a, at the draft. I haven't seen him at a minor league park. I haven't seen him at Dodger Stadium. I, I've never met this person. How do they know what we're doing? How do they know what we're thinking? Because I think, and you guys can tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong or if I'm in a hall of base I am, but you know, I think you guys would like to know what, what's going on. What is the GM thinking? Why would the GM do A or B and not C or D, right? And, and so I think the, the quest for information on your side too is, is strong. So I think, you know, I always tried to, again, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I would never lie to somebody, and there's some things you couldn't tell them. But if somebody came to me and said, hey, I hear you're talking to the Phillies about uh, X, Y, and Z, I'd say, you know what, you, you got a little piece of that right, but you don't have the whole thing right, and you don't have half of it right. So wherever you're getting that, I would continue to, to, continue to, to till the soil, so to speak, and continue to get through it because if you write that you're going to be wrong. But I'm not telling you that you're on the wrong track completely, but you're if you write what you just told me you're going to write, you're going to be inaccurate.
2: I can only speak for myself on the other end of, of you know situations like that, but I always like covering people that are consistent. In other words, like yeah. if you're somebody that was going to do it the way you did, Ned, right? Like you bring something over and it's okay, you're on the right track, not so much like as long as it was always that way, I was fine with it. Even if it was like, hey, don't talk to me about that. Okay. Like, be consistent. And it seems like, I don't know, Andy, I don't in your experience anyway, Like, I, for me, the consistency was always the best part, like the easiest thing to work with, as long as you knew where you were.
0: Yeah, cons- consistency and just not being lied to. I think that be, mm-hmm. be, being lied yep. to, if, when, when, when that happens, it's the sort of thing that really does, um, you know, you lose the benefit of the doubt like when when you when you lie to a reporter yep, I think I uh, agreed,
1: and i that's yeah I that's, get it I got a funny one for you, I think it's a funny story uh, It was my first or second year there, and then I got to know all the beat people, and i knew um I knew that there was two beat people that really didn't like each other, and one of them was was always on the side telling me how they they really disliked this other beat writer how lazy they were they didn't do this they didn't do that all of this stuff right and i did you know, i would never get in the middle of that that's none of my business but you know you could tell that there was this friction and this rivalry so the first one comes to me one day with this this uh this question and was a little bit a little bit on base a little bit off base uh, but they had done a lot of work on it so i said okay let me give you a feel for it off the record you got it off the record oh yeah 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 i got it off the record and so i lay out some thought process that is off the record and the next day it shows up in print okay so i called the writer in right right at game time the next day. i remember vividly i called the writer into the booth and i said i want to replay our conversation yesterday you came to me with an idea I told you it was half right, half wrong, and I gave you enough information off the record to help you out. I did you a favor. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I said, off the record, right? Yeah, I know where you're going with this. I says, yeah. yeah, and you wrote it. How could you do that? You know, you wrote it. You, you violated my trust in you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, he, and he got, the writer got a little bit, a little bit edgy with it, right? So I said, here's the deal. If you ever do that again, the writer that you don't like, that you think is lazy and doesn't work (laughs) at the beat, if you ever do this again, that writer will be winning a Pulitzer Prize for investigative (laughs) writing, and I'll make sure it happens.
2: (laughs) Oh, God, that's well played right there. Um, Like, I, I... Ned, your career is so interesting to me right like having been a sports writer uh you know worked working your way up and then then getting with the cubs i think you're in media relations with the cubs to start with and yeah so i have to ask this all right like early in my career as a sports writer i got i remember being in a group as this like i was a college student and like some football coach like went nuts right like just ripped into me for something like and I didn't know what to do. So I remember telling my professor, man, like this was pretty messed up. He pulls out a tape recorder, hits play, and it's Lee Elia. Okay, <laughs> it's Lee Elia in the office. And, oh, yeah. and at, the, at the end of the rant, he got, my professor goes, look, if you're going to be a sports writer, this kind of crap happens sometimes, and you're going to have to learn to deal with it. And so it made me think, you were working for the club then, and this is before Twitter, this is before social media, what do you remember about that day? And what do you remember, you know, wh- when was the point where you're like, oh, God, this is something we're going to have to go deal with?
1: Oh, that's a good one. Uh, I remember very little about that day. That's uh-huh. a lie. No, uh, actually, it was, a, <laughs> it, it was a Friday, and the Cubs used to play games at 3.05 before they had lights, okay, on a Friday afternoon to try and get the business crowd to come to Wrigley Field. It's a 3.05 game. It's the end of April. 28th, 29th, somewhere in there. We have a one-run lead. We're struggling out of the gate, struggling for three weeks. We have a one-run lead. Lee Smith comes in, turns out to be a Hall of Famer, dear friend, gives up two runs to the Dodgers. We get beat. Larry Boa, Keith Moreland are walking down the left field line because the clubhouse used to be located at the base of the left field foul pole up against the wall there. And a couple fans had perhaps a little bit too much uh, to drink, and they started getting on them, this and that, and, and so there was a little bit of an altercation between a couple players and a couple fans. So Lee gets wind of this, and I love Lee. I, I talk to Lee every two or three weeks. I went to see him in Florida uh, in December because he's, he's about 84, 85 years old now. Great, great guy. And I, I go down there, and uh, Lee knows that this, is, you know, that this has happened. And Lee's a very, very driven, emotional guy. So Les Grobstein is still doing radio in Chicago, but he was the, the radio guy who stayed after. After the media scrum had left, I was up in my office. After the media scrum left, he asked Lee about the altercation with the players and the fans. Mm-hmm. And then you know Lee goes off for a few minutes, you know, and so I'm up in my office. I don't know what's going on. I was the assistant director at that time, so I wasn't in the clubhouse always after after games. Les Gropson comes up to my office, and he said, um, "I'm going to play you something. Oh boy! That I'm going to have to air, but I want to give you a, a heads up." And so he plays it to him for me, and I'm thinking. Oh my goodness and and i and I love Lee Lee had been with us for you know, a year plus he came out in the winter of eighty of eighty one eighty two this was in april of eighty three so he'd been with us for a year, and year plus, and he and I became close and I go and I see Dallas. I say Les, hang here for a minute. I go and see dallas and uh, and Dallas is upset we lost a game after having a lead in the ninth inning I said i I got something you're going to have to hear. <laughs> and so, so he goes, oh, I, don't, I don't have to hear nothing. I says, no, Dallas, yeah, take my word for this one. You're going to have to hear this. <laughs> so he listens to it, and he goes, get Elia up here. So I go back oh, to my office. I call Lee. I says, uh, Lee, you got to come up here and see Dallas. He goes, well, I got something I got to do. I got to go out to the suburbs, you know, and, and, and see my wife and kids. I says, Lee, you're going to have to come up here. He goes, all right, I'll be up there. So he comes up like 20 minutes later, and he's in my doorway. My doorway was before you got to Dallas's office. And he, he looks in the doorway, and he goes, uh, yeah, I think I know why I'm up here. I said, oh, yeah? That's good. And he goes, uh, I think He goes, I think I made a mistake. I says, Lee, if you would have had Sandberg Button, you would have made a mistake. I said, sure, sure. "This is far more than a mistake." <laughs> you know, I says, "I don't know what we're gonna do with this." I said, "But you better go see Dallas." So he goes down and sees Dallas. They call me in the office like 20 minutes later, and and Dallas is like, you know, if you know Dallas, Dallas was like six foot five. I mean, just a great guy, beautiful heart, heart of gold, but also tough, tough cat. You know, he was mm-hmm. he was not the kind of guy you want to be messing around with, and. And so they, they look at me and go, well, what are we going to do about this? Go, well, we you know, what are we going to do about this? I said, the only thing we can do about this, Lee, you've got to apologize right now. You can't wait till Saturday to apologize. You're going to have to, so when the media breaks this story, they'll also have your half of it where you apologize for doing it, you know? And, uh, and so that was, that was it. But uh, Lee Elias is one and you wouldn't know it by the tape. But Lee Elia is one of the finest people I know in the game, and you know I've I've stayed in touch with him for almost 40 years now, and uh, somebody I took the time to go visit because he's, yeah, he had a you know had a tough five minutes there, you know. Does, well, there's, does, he there's, there's, a, th- does he have a sense of humor about it, or is
0: it something? Oh, be yeah. Like? Okay. oh yeah, oh okay. yeah,
1: yeah he knows. You're, I mean he doesn't yeah. want to be remembered for it. Sure. You know. But but that's that's you know one of the things he's gonna be remembered for. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean yeah. It's, it's, it's unforgettable. I mean it is. It's oh, an yeah. unforgettable rant. Well, because it just there's... keeps going and going and going. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not like it was Tommy Lasorda with Dave Kingman or oh, right. Right. or a uh, Goose Gossage with George Steinbrenner, where it was a 10-second, oh. fifteen second, you know, <laughs> yeah. piece of tape. This thing, it's not a, it's not a one liner.
0: Yeah. It's like an <laughs>
1: audio book, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. <laughs> like it, what's
2: amazing, it, it's like there's two takeaways. One, what a social commentary on the fly, right? Because like, think about the topics he addresses there. Unemployment, oh right? God. Ambition, uh, you know, oh defense my. of his player. Like, I mean, it's like amazing, right? In very colorful terms, but he's hitting some very big ideas. But number two, I look at that. It's like, man, that's a manager sticking up for his players. Good for him. Right, I mean, like, like that. That the context of that. I mean, there's better ways to do it. But at the end of the day, it seems like to me, like he was just sticking up for his players, and like that isn't the worst thing, is it? No, <laughs>
0: no. There, no there it might have been <laughs> a different way to go about it,
1: but yeah. Yes, yeah. you could have changed. You could have changed the word or two, right? Could've, right, could've, a word or two.
0: I don't know if he had to call them nickel and dime people, you know? Uh, right, <laughs> I think right. Tickets were, tickets were a little more expensive than. That. Oh gosh. Uh, Eighty-five
2: percent of the world's working; the other fifteen percent come out here. It was like, oh, wow, oh, beautiful. Oh yeah, good, good time. And <laughs> that
1: was, and that was not even a part that anybody took offense with. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, right. Typically, you would take offense to that, but nobody could oh, even take offense to that. Oh, oh so, funny. so funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, but you know, it's it's funny stuff sometimes. Yeah. You uh, know, the next day, oh. the next day to that Saturday. Chuck Rainey. I remember Chuck Rainey. was a starting pitcher, uh, pitcher for the Red Sox, pitched for us. Uh, Chuck Rainey was starting the next day on Saturday afternoon. And I'm sitting in Lee's office Saturday morning, and he brings in Chuck Rainey. And he says, Raines, he says, you know, you're our starter today. He says, I'm telling you right now, you're going to have to finish any inning you start because I am not coming out to get you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh.
2: <laughs> he says so um, you get into the sixth inning
1: don't be looking into the dugout with one out and one out because i ain't coming to get you uh, he will be out there for three outs
2: i love this game man i love baseball that's oh, yeah. <laughs> no, the best that's great
1: yeah that's great hey
0: then I'm I wondering. I'm wondering something cause we kinda, as we kind of as we kind of wind down here. I know you got uh, you got to go do TV and and teach the youth and you know find players to defeat the Ducks or whoever the Sharks' big rivals are. Uh, I, I I wanted. I was curious though. Like you had a lot of success as GM of the Dodgers. Like you, you put together a very, very good operation, both in terms of, you know, scouting and player development, signing free agents, all that sort of stuff. Uh, Has it like, have you made peace with kind of not being in that job anymore? Are there aspects of it? that you miss? I mean, are, was there frustration that, you know, you didn't sort of just rebound into a, uh, the same sort of gig with a different team afterwards? How do you like handle, have handled that transition,
1: I guess? You know, um, great question. I think the, you know, I've, I've always had to pay attention to everything uh, because I'm not, I'm not a scholar. I'm not uh, Ivy league educated or, or somebody like that that's got you know, this great bandwidth uh, intellectually. So I've always had to pay attention. And one of the things I learned during uh, the ownership of the, of the McCourt family was figure out what you got control over and what you don't have control over. And the things you have control over, your effort, how you think, how you dedicate yourself to different things, how you react to adversity, all these different things, effort, you know, that, that stuff I, I would take responsibility for and I would want to make it at the utmost, anything I had control over. And I had to learn, and I did learn it, it during those that that sure. that era there, that I can't worry about a lot of the things I have no control over, mm-hmm. and so I think that that played into this, you know, it it was somebody else's decision, and I mm-hmm. and I had to live with it, mm-hmm. and I, I couldn't do anything about it. I had done everything I could do about it, including right. you know work th- through different you know different things that most people don't have to do in that job. But, uh, you know, I was at peace with it. And, um, you know, I talked to Andrew Friedman that, that, that very day and wished him well and told him I'd be an asset to him and, and anything he ever needed. And, uh, and, and Stan, uh, you know, was, has been great. Uh, Lon Rosen told me that day, he said, hey, if you want to ever do TV here, we'd take you in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And I says, yeah, you know what, I'll do that. And he says, no, no, you can think about it. You can think about it for a while. <laughs> I says, you know what? I do, Because, you know, a lot of people would have said, hey, you know, I'm getting paid for the year. Right. I ain't doing nothing. Or, right. you know what? Or, 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 you know, hey, take a hike. You just, you know, you just, you just ran me out of a great job. Right. You know, I would seen too many people do that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I saw uh, maybe five minutes of value and, and 20 years of heartache mm-hmm. for people who, who treat a, a situation like that. And I just said, mm-hmm. hey, you know what? I was there almost a decade we won a lot of games sure we went to the playoffs a lot a lot of good players were left in that system a lot of good players had graduated you know a place was in tremendous shape and it was far better than the 71 and 91 that i had inherited back in the, in the winter of oh five so it's time for something new you know all the great books in the world very few have only one or two chapters so it was time for something new and i didn't know what i was going to do but the tv thing has turned out good i won a couple emmys with the great group at spectrum and uh been teaching taught in london last summer for a for a month you know pepperdine university a place like pepperdine wouldn't let a guy like me drive by it when i was getting <laughs> out of high school let alone stop and teach you know and and a hockey gig too so look every day i, t- I try to I, you asked me the question at the outset of this, this uh, interview. I try to find joy in every day, and I try to make the most out of every day. Every day. And mm-hmm. it's not always going to be how we planned or what we're comfortable with or how we want it to be. Mm-hmm. So I, I learned that years ago growing up, and I was reinforced during my, my first few years in L.A. With, uh, with ownership and things like that. And so, hey, things I got control of, I'll be relentless with it. Yeah, things I, I don't, I got to let go. I, I imagine
0: being a GM during the McCourt era taught you to roll
1: with the punches. Well, it did. I mean, it, it, you know, every day for a while, you know, especially when, you know, one of, I don't think you guys were ever really teammates over there, but, you know, T.J. Simers, mm-hmm. you know, he he went after him right from the get-go. I was mm-hmm. still in San Francisco uh, mm-hmm. when, the, when they had bought the team. Right. And, um, you know, he was, every time I'd see T.J., well, he just wanted me to, you know, to crush them and i you know and i, I would never do that that's mm. not that's not me and that's not you know i'm not gonna, i'm not that type of person but it was it was uh, endless it taught us a lot it taught everybody a lot and you know frank mccourt taught me a lot about business and people can like him or not like him or whatever and i, I know the way most people in la feel but um never never discount the brilliance and the mind of of somebody who did what he did and how we did it. And it's, it's an interesting study. It's not to be replicated completely. But there's a lot of points right. to it that are, that are pretty interesting.
0: <laughs> right. You, I mean, do the, the, do the history.
1: How did he buy the team? Mm-hmm. How did he buy the team? What did he invest? You know? And what did he end up with?
0: Makes sense. Well, Ned, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was really fun. We're glad we're able to catch up. Uh, glad you're doing well. Glad that you know you're staying safe and staying busy. It was uh, it was awesome to catch up with you.
1: I appreciate the time very much, guys. Love it. And uh, Andy, it's good to be interviewed by you for the first time. I always wondered what va- it would be like to be interviewed yeah. by Andy. <laughs> yeah, this is. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Oh man! Oh, I hope Dylan boy. doesn't hear this. Dylan's gonna just be ripping me for years if he hears this interview. And Andy, are you I still not well, I, I like Dylan.
1: Dylan doesn't like me. Well,
0: okay, no, no, but... no. Dylan just no. Dylan, Dylan loves you. It's more that Dylan just will be like, oh, oh, Ned, you were so great. You know, like when you signed Kershaw. Like he'll just be making fun of me for asking questions like that. You know, it's like the it's like the Chris Farley show. Like, hey, remember when you drafted Cody Bellinger? That was awesome. You know, stuff like oh. that. When
1: yeah, that look out in well, the mailbox. If Dylan told me he was going to become a columnist, I said one word. Really?
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh,
1: I'm only kidding. Uh, Love Dylan. God bless. God bless uh, you. All
0: right, Ned, guys. Ned, hey, Ned, thank you so much for coming
1: on. This was fun. Anytime. Be well, uh, gentlemen. Be wise. Take care. Likewise. Thank, thank you. See you
0: so thanks to ned for coming on thanks to all of you for listening if you go to theathletic.com slash beyond the scrum and subscribe you can get 40 percent off a year subscription please do it's a good site you'll like it and thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next week have a good one